Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From?, hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we have a brilliant scientist as our guest, Zali Yavaro, as our STEM career guest. Let's welcome to the stage, Dr. Yavaro. How are you? Hello, I'm doing all right this morning. How are you? I am okay. We are so excited to have you today. Thank you so, so much for having me. Of course. So Dr. Zali Yavaro is a science communicator and patient advocate focused on rare disease and gene therapy. She founded Zaris Consulting, an organization providing gene therapy consulting and science educational content with a patient focus. She earned her PhD in pharmacology and MA in bioethics and science policy from Duke University in 2022. She is a published scientist and talented science communicator, winning numerous awards for her presentation skills. After 10 years of research at the laboratory bench, Dr. Yavaro shifted to the real world applications of therapeutics she studied, focusing on the patient perspective. Beyond these interests, she loves experimenting with new flavors in the kitchen and spending time by the water. She calls Massachusetts home and loves to travel all over New England and beyond. So again, we are so excited to have you, Dr. Yavaro. Um, and so our first basic question that we usually have with all of our guests is, tell us a little bit more about you and about your background than the bio. Yeah, yeah. So you really covered it really well. So my name is Dr. Zal Yavaro. I'm the founder of Zara's Consulting which as you mentioned is an organization that's focused on patient-centered science education and consulting on an advanced medical technology called gene therapy. So this is something that I got interested in graduate school. It's effectively using genes as medicine. Um, so I graduated at the end of last year, 2022, with my PhD in pharmacology. And during the period where I was completing my PhD, I actually had the option to add a concurrent master's degree. And I was really interested in understanding sort of the bioethical components and especially bringing in the patient focus and how we would do that. So I was able to take advantage of a program at Duke to add in a master's in bioethics and science policy too. That's really fascinating because I think um, all too many times PhDs or folks in graduate school are so in, you know, in the thick of the laboratory bench, they kind of lose sight of um, mm -hmm. the patients. Um, so that's really exciting, though, that you were able to sort of expand your horizons in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's something that was really important to me. So I started in rare disease work in my undergraduate degree, so like 2013, 2014. As I'm starting to see in the field is not just um, I mean, patients being involved in their own treatment plans, but patient-centered drug development. Um, so really involving patients in the development of the drugs that are intended to treat them and help their conditions. So let's back up a little bit to your, I think, undergraduate, which you alluded to. Mm -hmm. How did you get introduced to, to research and to rare disease research and um, gene therapy? Yeah, so I would say my introduction to research is even a little bit earlier than undergraduate. So my mother is an analytical chemist. 
So I grew up with her bringing home dry ice and she showed up to my kindergartner and did like a little experiment for us with food coloring and pipettes. So I always had this sort of model that like, oh, I could go and be a scientist as a woman. Um, so that was really fortunate for me. And I was very much drawn to the sciences in my grade schooling. I liked that there were answers to a lot of the questions, at least the level of science I was learning at the time. I've now learned it's not so simple. Science does not have all the answers. Um, but that was something I really liked when I was studying. Uh, so when I went to college, I studied biochemistry at Mount Holyoke College, and I was really set on finding a summer internship that would give me the opportunity to be in the lab. Because this is when you go from learning the things that are already known to really being at the forefront of like knowledge production, which I think is incredibly exciting and something that really draws me to research. Um, so I applied to a bunch of summer programs, most of which were called REUs, which is a research experience for undergraduates. And this is a program that's sponsored by the National Science Foundation. So they basically partner with universities and other research institutions to provide groups of generally college students with like eight to 12 weeks summer internship opportunities where they get to work in a lab. And how was that experience? And how, um, I always like to, I, I, I like to talk about internships and sort of short-term experiences because I think mm -hmm. it, it either tells you what you like and what you enjoy doing, or it tells you what you don't like and what you don't enjoy doing, which I think is mm -hmm. all the more valid, if, yeah. if, if anything, equivocally valid. Um, so tell us a little bit about a, that experience. Yeah, yeah. So I landed on the side of loving what I was doing because, you know, I went on to go and get a PhD and study rare disease for 10 years. Um, so I actually thought at this time and even going into graduate school that I was going to focus more on cancer biology and understanding cancer as a disease. But I happened to be placed for this REU program into a lab that studied a rare lysosomal storage disorder. So it's just a single gene mutation causes this whole host of symptoms and impairments in protein trafficking and how trash is broken down within our cells. Um, and something about it, I just was incredibly intellectually drawn to it. And I'm like, one change does all of this. And if we can fix that one thing, then we can help alleviate the symptoms, like the huge diverse array of symptoms that come up. So I think from that point, I was really hooked. And I, I loved being in the lab environment. That was something that was incredibly beneficial for me to understand from the internship, because at least with my schooling at Mount Holyoke, we were offered lab classes, but it's a very different setup. They generally give you experiments that are going to work, and they already know what the outcomes are. Whereas with scientific research, like you have to design that experiment. You're not just handed all of the reagents. You have to go and collect them yourself. You have to put them away. Um, you're expected at some point to know how to use all the equipment on your own. Um, you don't always have somebody over your shoulder telling you, yep, you need to plug this in here. You need to angle your pipette a certain way. Um, 
but that is incredibly valuable experience that is more like the real it's the real life experience whereas the experiences that I had in my college lab classes were more like the mock cases. Well, it's funny that you say that your lab classes, everything worked because I remember labs that failed epically. And I don't know if it was uh, because of the participants, you know, or if it was because of the reagents being, you know, by the end of the week, they were all contaminated. Um, that was totally a possibility as well. Um, but it's, it's the other piece there is um, doing lab work in a full-time position is very different from just going into lab for a couple of hours and then leaving and thinking it's not only the the intellectual stimulation around designing an experiment and using the equipment and all of that but it's the the rigor and the resilience of continuously doing it and either failing and needing to fix something or succeeding and going how did i succeed so that was your introduction, I think, to to lab for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you make the determination? Was that just it? It was sort of kismet in the fact that you're, you wanted to go and get a PhD from there? So I would say from very early on being in the lab, I knew I loved, I just loved it. Um, so it felt very natural for me to continue it. And also learning that I was pretty good at it was also, you know, a very validating thing you know it's nice to have some skills and the things that we're gonna go and build careers in um so in those first couple weeks of the internship we were required to have an elevator pitch of what our summer project was and i remember of the dire the director of the program being like you gave the best elevator pitch and i felt very um it was very validating because i was the youngest student there and she had also said earlier, we generally don't take first year students, but like we were intrigued by you. So I'm like, okay, I've got something going on here, which is which is really nice. Um, I hadn't been set on a PhD at that point. So that was in, you know, the summer after my first year of school. Like I knew it was an option to go and get a PhD. I worked with PhDs in the lab that I was in, or excuse me, people who were getting their PhD. Um, and a couple people who had their PhD as well. But I hadn't fully set that for myself as a career path. So as I was getting to the place where I was about to graduate college, I was thinking, what do I want to do next? And looking at options in industry, the pharmaceutical industry, looking at options in academia. And it was pretty clear that no matter what direction I wanted to go, it was going to be highly beneficial, if not required, for me to have a PhD. Um, so I, I kind of did it by a default, in a way. I was like, all right, it seems like even if I don't know what I want to do yet, I have to have a PhD. So let's just, just go do that. So are you doing now what you always aspired to do? And if not, how has that changed? And if so, how were you introduced to it? Yeah, I would say, I don't know that it is or isn't what I've aspired to do. It's something that I enjoyed. Um, so I guess I did always aspire to stay in rare disease. And from, actually, that's not true at all. 
now that I think about it. Because um, I kept thinking I was going to be in cancer biology. Even, you know, when I went to graduate school, I thought I was going to move into cancer, but I kind of stayed in rare disease. And even when I, so I ultimately, there was a point in my PhD studies where I had to transition labs because it was just not a, a healthy place for me to be working. At that point, I had to leave rare disease, but I, at that point, I also added the master's and was able to like keep that personal like passion alive. And so I'd say by at least like mid-graduate school, I was really like hooked onto being in the rare disease space and also in studying gene therapy, which is something that was approved around like my first couple years of graduate school. We had the first in human gene therapy approved, which was incredibly exciting. We had the advent of CRISPR, a, a gene editing technology. We actually just saw the first CRISPR gene therapy approved last week, which was very, very exciting for me. Um, yeah, clap, clap. Um, so in some ways for the last couple of years, this has felt like the topic at least where I would land and has been my passion. But in terms of like the title of my career, I wouldn't say this is at all what I expected. <laughs> um, so I founded my own science communication organization and consulting. It wasn't something that I expected to be doing, but it's worked out well. So I originally considered when I was graduating positions in medical affairs, I knew I really wanted to be centering patients. I wanted to be communicating science. So I looked at a position called medical science liaison or MSL, which basically coordinates with the pharmaceutical. So the pharmaceutical industry teaches you a whole bunch of information. Your job is to go and talk with key opinion leaders and basically be like an informational sleuth and like bring back key insights from having those conversations with all of the like major leaders in the field. And that sounded, still does sound incredibly intriguing to me. I've considered, you know, going back to the bench a little bit because my time at the bench was cut short due to the pandemic. Um, yeah, and I also considered being a patient advocate directly with either the pharmaceutical industry or with patient advocacy organizations. And as I've talked with people and pursued those, I've I found that my dream job doesn't quite fit any of those. And so I'm a year out now. I've sort of taken a gap year to to figure out what my role in this industry and this passion area of mine will actually look like. Um, and as I've talked with probably upwards of 100 people in different networking calls in that time, I sort of found like, oh, I'm trying to do something that is very new and unique and important and needed, but it's a new space. And that's something that I wasn't necessarily prepared to forge my own way. And I thought I was gonna, you know, get hired at a pharmaceutical industry, have six figures in a nine to five and like just walk onward like the rest of my peers. But it, it has not worked out that way for me for, for better or for worse. Like there are hard days, but it's also incredibly exciting um, to be doing what, I, what I've always kind of wanted to be doing for the last couple of years. I think that's exciting in the fact that um, you also are information gathering, right? And that discovering that 
you've discovered that there is a gap because what you want to do and there is a need for what you want to do, there isn't a job that you, that provides that, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, the basic definition of a gap, right? Yeah. Um, and um, so I think I want to delve back or delve into a statement that you just made mm-hmm. because as I, as I think about my own journey and as I think about people thinking through, you know, what labs to join, um, considering different PIs and such. Um, I think there is a, a point in which you have to be honest with yourself and know what you want in a lab and in a PI. Mm-hmm. And so could you tell us a little bit more about, about your, your experience? Yeah. So when I was choosing a lab, I think what I was ultimately drawn to was the topic area. Um, Cause I, I sort of realized through, so I did four lab rotations and I realized that I was just incredibly drawn to rare disease. That was my, my fourth lab rotation. And I, I found it hard to leave, but it's important to consider the PI and how you're going to be able to work with them, what their level of support and involvement is with their PhD students and whether or not that's compatible with your skill set and what you're looking for. How did you determine and then what did you learn through that determination and through that decision making? Um, Because I think it also solidifies in, in you as it did in me, like my expectations and other people and my, my expectations of management as well. Mm. Um, And yeah, just kind of like that line of questioning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point about like how you want to be managed. Um, So some people are more hands-on or hands-off, but one of the things that I realized was incredibly important to me in somebody who is going to be my boss is somebody who has I'll say really strong people skills and conflict management as well. Because um, as I alluded to earlier, there were people in that lab that I didn't get along with, didn't seem to like me, made some claims that I was incompetent at times when I'm like, I know I'm not incompetent. Like I published a paper in my first two years in graduate school, which is unheard of. Like I knew I could do good work. Um, but when I brought these sort of things forward with the person who was my boss, it was really dismissive of what was going on in my experience in the lab. And regardless of what the other people's experience were as well, it's like, your feelings are valid, I guess, (laughs) what I'll say. Um, So having a mentor who is able to support you in whatever you're going through and manage multiple people who are all working together and all have different needs. Um, And that's something that I try to bring into the times where I am a mentor. So whether that was in graduate school, trying to make sure that I understood the wants and needs and how things were going and interactions with other people in the lab. Um, And also now as a mentor, so I've had an intern this uh, past couple months and being able to respond when she has other really big life things going on because that impacts how you can show up in the workplace in a PhD has a huge impact. And to the extent that as a mentee, you can 
communicate and feel safe, feel comfortable communicating what's going on, I think that makes your work environment so much easier to exist in. And as a result, what most of your bosses care about is more productive. Um, like, so when I'm I'm comfortable in an environment. I love what I'm doing. Like I can just go, like I can do three experiments at the same time. My brain's just like in flow. But when I'm worried about everything that's going on at home or interactions with other people in the lab, what's going to be happening that day, it's a little harder to focus and it's harder to be really on point with really cool research that you're trying to do and are really excited about and you're there to do. Um, so I think noting with your mentor and the lab environment and people there, to what extent will things be able to be resolved either through them or like your own skills? Like I have different um, people skills than I did several years ago. And that's something that I've learned through experience, but also intentionally like reading and researching or trying to research still, um, trying to figure out how to, how to move through life most effectively. I think you hit on something really important too, is that um, it's not just your, it's not the research topic that should be the only consideration when you're thinking about a PhD. I mean, obviously that is important, but there is a whole other um, slew of, of sort of information and, thoughts that have to go into the decision and it's not a just it's not like the reu program where it's three months you're going to you know you can deal with pretty much almost anything for three months you cannot almost deal with anything for five years or longer yeah. um it is really taxing not only on your um physicality but also your emotional state your mental health and so on and so forth um so that's duly noted um and thank you for that guidance i think that's spot on um, and as you mentioned, you, along the way, you got a master's in um, bioethics. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, why, how, what, where? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great question, because I it's not something that I anticipated doing going in. Um, and I think is not, most people stop at getting a PhD at one time, you know, most people just say that's good. Um, but I learned sort of earlier on in my time at Duke that they had an option to complete a concurrent master's degree at the same time as your PhD um, without any sort of additional tuition costs for it. And I thought, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So I sort of had in the back of my mind in those first couple of years of my PhD program, what those programs were and if they would be of use to me. Um, and when I was getting a little bit more into my work with rare disease and gene therapy, I was starting to ask some of my supervisors questions about like, oh, how do we figure out which patients will get this treatment? How do we figure out what dose they get and when? Who is going to have access to this? Because it's really expensive. How do we pay for it? Who's paying for it? And those were questions that my supervisors were kind of like, oh, we don't do that. I, I don't know. Like it was very like, we're, we're punting that to the next person. I thought, gosh, somebody ought to be thinking about that. And it fit really well into the frameworks of bioethics and science policy and how we are regulating our drugs and 
the frameworks that we use to regulate drugs um, and how to treat patients as well, thinking about like key bioethics principles of like justice, beneficence, so basically like having goodwill, um, equality, equity, which is generally what I lean on more than equality. So equality is, you know, everybody gets the exact same thing. Whereas with equality, we're thinking, okay, this person, there's sort of an example of people who are trying to watch a baseball game over a fence. There's a very tall person, he can see over the fence. There's somebody who's like sort of mid-height and there's somebody who's very short and they've got three boxes. Equality, everybody gets a box and those shorter people still can't see. <laughs> but with equity, you know, the shortest person gets two boxes, the middle person gets one box and the tallest person has no box and they can all see over the fence. They can all watch the game. So the goal with equity is trying to get everybody to the same point at the table, making sure everybody has the same background or not the same background, but equivalent resources that they're working from to try and achieve similar outcomes. Yeah, so I was able to add the master's in bioethics and science policy and pick up all of these really helpful frameworks for me to think about how do we treat rare patients and rare families in the most equitable manner? Because it's different for everybody and trying to get everybody a similar outcome, a similar seat at the table, it's not an easy thing to do. So when you think about science policy and you think about rare diseases, what is what comes top of mind for you as challenges and um, hardships? Gosh, I think one of the really big challenges I see that I think there's just not a good answer to is time. Like we are working against time with rare diseases. So they're often progressive. So in the case of a lysosomal storage disorder, like those sort of trash products are just building up in the cells and causing more and more problems. Or in cases of like a neurodegenerative condition, you don't get your neurons back. Like we don't, it doesn't come back. So time is very much of the essence for these parents and their children. And when we're trying to develop a treatment, it takes time, especially if we want to be really thorough and careful with it. And so we have to strike this incredibly complicated balance between making sure we're doing our due diligence with bringing something that is new to market. We only have, I think we're at eight gene therapies now that have been approved. Half of those have been this year alone. So something that is very new in our medical system, doing it safely, but also doing it fast enough that we're able to help these patients before they've seen, you know, life altering degeneration or progression of their condition. And it's really hard to tell a parent like, hey, we can't give you this treatment. Like this is something you've been hoping for and baking on, but we just can't give it to you. We don't believe it's safe. 
it might negatively impact the future of this therapy generally if there is some sort of adverse effect from it. And there are some cases where you have to think about the whole of all of the children in the future that will have this condition and could benefit, even when it's it's impossible almost to say to a parent whose kid is not doing well that this hope you had, we can't. Well, that's a, it's a, such a ethical question around, does the safety of a trial come before the, I mean, the patient mortality, like what is, um, I think it's so, so critical to think about that. Plus, I mean, that comes, you know, we come full circle to where we initially started the conversation around patients being partners and that you can advise a patient that say like, this is not safe for you. But if they decide that I don't care, I want to oversee the risks, um, Mm -hmm. I am willing to be. and, And that's the other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think, clinical research and trials out there that may not affect the immediate population of the right now, but I think mm-hmm. people are willing to do and, and provide major sacrifices so that future populations could be served too, mm-hmm. um, which is such an ethical dilemma, I mean, frankly. Yeah, I'd say one of the places we're seeing that a little bit in the rare space is with natural history studies. So a lot of this is sort of medical testing that patients are having done anyways as part of their workup, but to the extent that there's anything additional being done, um, these groups are just trying to collect really extensive data on how their diagnosis impacts all aspects of their physical health. Um, And to the extent that they can have a really robust natural history study, it will benefit future patients, hopefully by able being able to use that information as like a control group in clinical trials, which is another interesting ethical dilemma we have with RARE is there are so few patients, it doesn't, it's not generally considered okay to not give somebody a treatment to put them in a placebo arm. So there's been a lot of discussion in the RARE space about how do we design clinical trials such that everybody ultimately gets treated, but we still have appropriate controls to know that the treatment is positive from baseline, which is small to do, which, excuse me, which is hard to do with a small sample. So natural history studies are coming into play with that, but it's a lot of work to put them together and a lot of work from patients to have all of that testing done and compile it and help make sure it gets to the right place and the right people. Well, and then you enter the conversation with how do you take into consideration um, geographically dispersed populations that are not in the U.S., that are international populations? And, and then it's the whole discussion around access to clinical research. Mm-hmm. And how do you think about rare diseases that might not necessarily impact Americans, but that impact, mm-hmm. you know, third world countries and, mm-hmm. you know, the clinical research there and then using them as patients, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, re- it's a heavy topic. I mean, frankly, it is a heavy topic. Yeah, it's a heavy topic and it's, 
it's a topic I've grown to become incredibly interested in and enjoyed some of the ambiguity of it. Like when I was growing up, like I said, I, I liked that science had answers. But as I learned that science doesn't have all the answers, I've also come to more greatly appreciate the ambiguity in, you know, in ethical discussions and philosophy and literature. Like it's valuable to discuss everybody's different points of view. And it can be even more information to try and juggle and make sense of in your mind than when you've got, you know, three replicates of a of a like experiment that I need to like take an average between. Like it, it's just it's so much more complex and I appreciate that about it. So we've taken a tour de force, I think of, of yeah. your scientific career, um, decision points, pivots. Now we've also discussed a little bit of your, your uh, career aspirations, what are you doing now? Um, and then, you know, coming again, full circle to the bioethics of, of rare disease and the ethics behind clinical research in rare disease. So I think my, my last question as we wrap is, you know, if you were to talk to uh, Zali, you know, 10 years ago, what kind of guidance would you have given her? Yeah, that's one that I really struggle with because I, I think I've spent a lot of time in recent years just trying to be peace with life as it comes and not trying to back analyze all of my decisions and be like, oh, I could have done this better. Um, so there's so many things that I've done in the past 10 years. And looking back, I don't know how I did all of them. Like it was a lot. But in terms of if I could give myself maybe advice, but not like a Here's what you should do differently. Um, take a breath. <laughs> Just like take a breath and sort of relax and try and find comfort that like you're on the right path and it's all going to work out one way or another. I try to believe that, you know, even when I've had setbacks and hardships that they're ultimately moving me in the right direction. So even when I'm, you know, I had a job offer rescinded that I was really excited about, but it sort of prompted me to start my own organization. Um, like realizing that some of the hardships we encounter teach us really, really valuable lessons too, and can point us in the direction of things that are maybe better fits for us. There's a little bit of that, um, give yourself grace, um, but then also have the resilience to just keep on going. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, and, and I know resilience and grit uh, are sort of the two things that I like to really profess um, coming out of a PhD is one of yeah. the things that you just really have to develop. Um, yeah, yeah. I've taken to calling myself scrappy and tenacious. There you go. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Nasty. <laughs> um, well, with that, uh, Dr. Yavaro, thank you so much for your, your wisdom, um, telling us a little bit um, about yourself and discussing such powerful topics as, you know, bioethics and ethics and rare disease clinical research. I think they're just, it's just so powerful. And um, really, you're doing some really fabulous work, frankly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, 
Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And always remember to ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye, everyone.